It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Adam Minsky, we play a round of Forgive Me. And then it's time for our annual audio-only foliage tour of New England. It's the only way to truly enjoy those changing colors. But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's time for the Legal Toolkit Podcast. Let the monkey shine since Sue. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I left my Halligan bar in the shed. I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because TJ Laven was unavailable. Yes, he was finally eaten by CT. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Adam Minsky, student loan lawyer, let's roll out another charter member of my perfect albums club. Coldplay is sort of a lightning rod of a band. They got really popular too, which always brings out the haters. Trust me, I know. And they were branded as an emo band. There was also some backlash against emo bands in the late 2000s. Um, I myself am not an emo guy. But I have to say, early Coldplay was pretty damn good. And the first two Coldplay albums were both excellent. Parachutes was their first studio album and their commercial breakthrough. That came out in 2000. Yellow was the big hit and the song you probably remember most from that album. But there were other singles too and some other good album tracks, including Shiver, Spies, and Sparks. Yeah, they all start with an S. And I didn't do that on purpose. That's real. A Rush of Blood to the Head was the follow-up album in 2002. And that's what really sent Coldplay through the stratosphere. Not only was this album commercially successful, it is a legitimately great record in its own right. Clocks is probably the biggest hit on the record and uh, is probably the defining track, in part because it's so damn catchy. There's also a fantastic version of this song on a collaborative album from Cuban musicians, including Buena Vista Social Club called Rhythms del Mundo, that is absolutely amazing. The vocals stay the same, the instrumentation is just different, and you can bet your ass that song will be on my playlist for this episode. It's so good. It may be better than the original. But there's also other good songs on this album, too. And even the songs I don't like, I can at least respect. Green Eyes, Warning Sign, and In My Place are probably my favorite songs. And even while I don't really like The Scientist or Politic as much, the first of which was a pretty big hit, those songs have considerable merit still. Now, Coldplay Live came out in 2003, and that was, as you might guess, a live album. That was focused on presenting live versions of songs from their first two albums. There's a really good live version of Amsterdam on that album. It's about seven minutes long. Uh, pretty baller, honestly, to come out with a live album after only two studio albums, but Coldplay was huge at the beginning of the century. Back to the studio album catalog now. Next, X and Y was released in 2005, and that was honestly a little bit of a backslide for the band. The record was okay, I guess, but that's the best thing I can say about it. The singles are pretty good, including The Speed of Sound, fix you and talk but there's a lot of filler and i can listen to the hits without wanting to listen to anything else on that album x and y was far from a perfect album 
and Coldplay was going to need to do something next to uniquely impress me to keep me invested in them as a band. Well, they sure did, because they followed up the very mediocre X and Y with an absolute triumph. Coldplay's 2008 release, Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends, is a perfect album. I mentioned before that perfect albums are sort of a vibe, which is why they're different for everybody. And 2008 was very good to me. I got married that year, or I had gotten married the year before. And I remember that my wife and I went to Hawaii for a second time after honeymooning there the year before. And it was my first trip to Maui. Now, I love Hawaii and I love my wife. And I distinctly remember flying back, which is usually super depressing, and listening to this album on my iPad while sitting next to my wife. And I was seriously like, well, if the plane goes down, there are worse ways to go out, I suppose. Not many record albums could make me okay with dying in a fiery plane crash. Later that year, we went to see Coldplay at the Boston Garden, which has a horrible corporate name now that I won't mention. And it was a really good show, like surprisingly so. And the drummer, Will Champion, was a beast. I left very impressed. They were a pretty tight live band. But the studio album is the subject at hand, and it's brilliant. It's like a great progressive rock album, only with shorter songs and modern production values. It's also a really varied album in that it covers a number of different musical styles. Super producer Brian Eno worked with Coldplay on this album, and his mandate was every song had to be substantively different. So lead vocalist Chris Martin even experimented with deeper vocal ranges, which is one of the reasons that this album does not sound like anything Coldplay has produced before or since. And despite the varied styles, every song is driving and urgent in its own way. This is a super high-end record. It's the caviar, in fact, of late 2000s pop. And fitting that high-minded ideal, the record cover is taken from an 1830 French painting called Liberty Leading the People. Plus, how awesome is an alternate album title of Death and All His Friends? This isn't just a series of poignant or woebegone love songs. There are real themes addressed here like death and war. This is some serious shit, people. But it's also about the songs, right? And of the many ballsy moves orchestrated here, one is that the album starts out with an instrumental, life and technicolor, which is a bop. Not sure I'm using that term correctly, but whatever. I don't listen to Olivia Rodrigo. Plus, the album ends with a secret song. So-called secret songs are tracks not listed on the album, called The Escapist. All right, we got an album about death with references to the Beatles' The End, which almost finishes off Abbey Road that ends with the ultimate escape from all the sadness of life? Or is it just a dream? Sign me the fuck up. Other highlights include Death and All His Friends, the final listed track, which is a melancholy piano ballad that splits into a suite in the middle with an upbeat ending segment about the weariness of life. And then you die. <laughs> Cemeteries of London is a percussive force. I'm telling you, Coldplay's drummer is really good if you listen to these songs. Lost, exclamation point, is a jaunty song about picking yourself up and keeping going. 42 is another song that becomes a suite and which addresses themes of death in the afterlife as well. Of course it does. It doesn't even have a chorus. Fuck yeah. I love that shit. Yes has something of a Bollywood vibe at points and it drips with agitation, which is sort of a rare thing for a Coldplay song. Violet Hill mixes synth, piano, and guitar in a really effective way and also heavily borrows from the Beatles. Strawberry Swing is probably the finest song on the album, and it still gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Close your eyes, and it's a summer day. I also think this song is heavily influenced by mindfulness. Viva La Vida is the title track, assuming you accept the first title as the title, 
And it's probably the worst song in the album, if you can believe it. There's so many good songs, in fact, and the album was so popular that Coldplay later released the Prospects March EP. EP stands for Extended Play. Not as long as an album, longer than a single, you get it. Which included some songs that didn't make the final cut, as well as alternative versions of album cuts. I love this album so much, I still talk about it a lot. Every time I do, my friend Jeff is like, dude, you love that album. And I do. Viva La Vida is fucking amazing. And after it came out, I was super excited to see what Coldplay would do next. I was hoping they would keep pushing the envelope. But their next album was 2011's Milo's Zylodo, which was absolutely horrendous. So much for that. Maybe that was their Super Bowl hangover album. I don't know. But I just couldn't get into Coldplay anymore after that because they had set the bar so high. And when their progressive rock tendencies were burnt back down to pop schlock again, I just couldn't do it. It's thoroughly disappointing, but I do have this theory that popular bands lose their creative edge after eight years together. I'll tell you about it sometime. But for that one moment in time, back in the glorious summer of 2008, on the tarmac in Maui, Coldplay was just about perfect. So welcome death and all his friends. You know who's colder than Coldplay, though? Joshua Lennon, who has this week's edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report. What do lawyers with great client relationships all have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent Legal Trends Report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half of them can say the same. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends. Okay, let's get into the meat of this show, everybody. Today's meat is bologna. Uh, now nah, let's talk about something else. It's time to interview our guest. My guest today is Adam Minsky, a student loan lawyer. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. Good to be here. Doing all right? Not too bad. Not too bad. Crazy time okay. for student loan lawyers these days. <laughs> well, so, yes, I was going to say, I want to have you on because obviously big news coming out of the Biden administration They've allowed student loan forgiveness in certain contexts for certain borrowers. This is not my field of expertise. I think I am far past getting my loans forgiven, sadly. But can you give us a rundown of what's going on right now? Because this, this is a huge deal for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, things are crazy. There's a lot going on. Uh, so the big news is the one-time cancellation initiative, which can wipe out 10000 and in some cases up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for borrowers with government-held loans. Uh, estimated 40 million borrowers uh, may ultimately qualify for this. Of course, it's also now the subject of multiple lawsuits, uh, and a federal appeals court has now temporarily blocked the program. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But already something around 22 million borrowers have already applied for relief. 
There's also a waiver in effect for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program that can retroactively provide a whole bunch of credit towards the 10 years of qualifying payments that are required to get loan forgiveness for folks who work in nonprofit or government jobs. That waiver ends on the 31st, so a lot of people are scrambling to get their their applications in for that program. And then there's another initiative called the IDR Account Adjustment, which can similarly provide retroactive credit for borrowers seeking loan forgiveness under income-driven repayment plans. That program is just now ramping up uh, and isn't expected to be in full force until sometime next year. Uh, But that's sort of the next big thing on the student loan forgiveness horizon. Good Lord, that's a lot of stuff. Can we drill down on that a little bit? Sure. So one-time loan forgiveness cancellation, whatever you call it, is that to protect people from coming back if the law gets better at some point down the line? Like, let's say I get $10,000 forgiven, and then there's an opportunity to get 40000 later. Am I out of luck? Sounds like it might be. I mean, the programs are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, okay. And, you know, the, the one-time cancellation really is designed to put people in a better position than they were when COVID hit. Um, that's the, the legal basis for the program. But, um, you know, gotcha. someone who has, say, $50,000 in student loan debt, if they qualify for the one-time cancellation and you might also qualify for public service uh, loan forgiveness, there's nothing preventing you from applying for both. Oh, that's great. Okay. So this notion of credit that you mentioned before, that's interesting to me. Like usually in the past, you were just paying the loans or you were doing your time working at a nonprofit to get those 10 years in. How's the credit piece of it work? Well, so when I say credit, what I'm referring to is specifically for, say, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program requires 120 what they call qualifying payments. Now, under the original rules for PSLF, a qualifying payment had very strict criteria. Only payments made on certain types of loans qualify. Only payments made under certain kinds of repayment plans qualify. If you were a penny short or a day uh, off, um, it might not count. If you overpaid, it could trip things up. There are a whole bunch of ways that you could be doing everything right, um, or at least so you thought, and then find out later that it didn't count as a qualifying payment. So what the waiver does is it expands the definition of what a qualifying payment is so that entire loan periods that might otherwise have been rejected can now be counted uh, under the waiver. So for some borrowers, that means that they're accelerating their progress towards loan forgiveness. They're closer to that 120th payment than they otherwise would be. And for borrowers who get so far with this retroactive credit that it pushes them beyond the 120 payments, they can get immediate loan forgiveness. So it's kind of a big deal for those folks. Yeah, that's wild. So many loopholes. I guess that's how you know the government's involved, right? (laughs) Um, Yep, yep. So if I'm out there and I'm listening to the show, not recording it, which I'm doing right now, (laughs) how do do I know if I'm eligible? Like, does someone give me a notification? Do I have to go to a website to find out? Like, what does that look like? Well, that's part of the reason that I have a job doing this work, unfortunately. I was going to say, (laughs) this is kept undercover, right? You got to really search for this. (laughs) It's not easy. I mean, so each of these programs have their own eligibility rules, and obviously they're designed to expand eligibility, but they have rules. And to make matters even more complicated, those rules 
change sometimes. So for instance, mm-hmm. for the one-time cancellation initiative, only borrowers with what we call government-held federal loans can qualify. That means right. loans that are either issued or held by the Department of Ed or were issued by a commercial lender but subsequently transferred over to the Department of Ed. Um, and you also have to earn within certain income guidelines. So again, for that one-time cancellation, you have to earn under 125000 if you're single or married filing separately, or 250000 is the threshold if you're married filing jointly in either 2020 or 2021. And then whether you get 10000 or 20000 depends on whether you received a Pell Grant, which is a type of federal aid. Oh yeah, that's a very specific repaid. type of loan, right? That, well, it's not even a loan. It's a grant. Um, it's something that you you literally don't have to repay, but it is indicative of coming from a low-income family. And so the idea is uh, we want to target cancellation towards lower-income borrowers. So that's that's the, the reason for that. But for that one-time cancellation that is widely available and you know they're saying 40 million borrowers can benefit even that has some pretty strict eligibility criteria so and it gets even more complicated for some of these other initiatives sounds painful does it make you just want to pay sometimes i'll just pay the loans off <laughs> um, <laughs> so in terms of um in terms of these lawsuits you talked about i think that's interesting so like basically like people are applying but this is potentially on hold or could potentially be changed in the future. And do you have a sense of where that's going to go? Does anybody? I don't think anyone does because yeah. the the one-time cancellation program in particular is is truly unprecedented. There's never been anything like this before, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah. And there are multiple lawsuits. Several of them have been dismissed, but several of the ones that have been dismissed have been appealed. And one federal appeals court um, has issued an administrative stay pending arguments on um, a more uh, lasting injunction. Uh, so we might know more from that court in the coming days. But I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen here. You know, is 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 it going to be blocked? Uh, is it going to get up to the Supreme Court? Um, are people going to actually get their loans forgiven? We don't know. All we know is right now, uh, the Department of Ed cannot award any loan forgiveness, but they are continuing to accept applications. So we'll have to see. Wow. It's like the Wild West. It is. I, I want to get back to this process question in a second, but it sounds like there's scenarios where people could potentially get 100% of their loans forgiven. Is that just for the context of pro bono work or outside of that? So, I mean, a program like public service loan forgiveness has no cap or limit uh, on the amount of loans that can be forgiven. If you have, you know, if, if you've accumulated 120 qualifying payments, uh, including under this waiver, uh, which again expands the definition of what counts as a qualifying payment. The rules for employment are largely unchanged, meaning you have to be employed full time uh, either for a 501c3 nonprofit organization or a public entity of some kind, like a public school or a government agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have 120 months that qualify, yeah, there's no cap. You can get 100% of your federal student loans that qualify forgiven. Dang. If only I was a little bit younger. Um, <laughs> so I, I said I wanted to talk about process because who doesn't love process? So mm. this application, if I'm out there in the wild, I'm definitely applying to have my student loans forgiven, even if the regulations change at some point down the line. It sounds like people are doing that. What's the application process look like? Are these forms hard to find? Is it easy to do? Like, are they asking for like tons of financial information? Depends on the program. So the one-time mm-hmm. cancellation is actually arguably the simplest 
student loan forgiveness application that I think anyone has ever seen. You don't even need to log in. It's available online at studentaid.gov. It takes about 30 seconds to fill out. No supporting documentation is required. You just put down your information, self-certify that you meet the criteria, and you submit it, and that's all you got to do. So if you haven't applied, you can do so at studentaid.gov, and the Department of Ed is encouraging everyone to submit an application. Now, the Department of Ed may follow up later and request proof of income. Um, they're going to do that, I believe, for somewhere around one to five million borrowers who apply might subsequently be asked to supply uh, you know, a tax return to prove that they actually did earn with in the income guidelines, but yeah. uh, it's actually a very simple application. Public service, on the other hand, is not. That process, depending on the borrower's circumstances, might involve direct loan consolidation. There's employment certifications that have to be completed. If you've had multiple employers, you need a separate certification for each employer. So that program, unfortunately, uh, has a more complicated application process. So as an attorney in this space, do you find that you're helping people with the application process at this point? Or do you envision that they're mostly coming to you after the fact when the regulations have been settled and they're into that process or there's an issue with the process? A little bit of everything. I think these days, you know, certainly in the last you know month or two, a huge focus of my practice has been advising people on eligibility and process. You know, here's what you may qualify for. Here's what you need to do. Here are some pitfalls. Here's what to expect. Uh, and if something goes wrong, here's what to do. And so that's been basically my days <laughs> since these initiatives have have been announced uh, because a lot of people are scrambling to get information. It's not always easily accessible. Sometimes it's right. unclear, confusing, or conflicting, and people want help. All right. So as you know, this is a podcast for lawyers. You yourself are a lawyer. I'm a lawyer, mm. although I haven't practiced law in anger in many, many years. Lawyers have lots of student loan debt from probably college, law school, is there anything in particular that attorneys should be aware of in terms of loan forgiveness? Well, uh, you know, for folks who have very large balances, obviously the one-time cancellation of ten to twenty thousand may feel like a drop in the bucket. I tell people every little bit helps, so if you qualify, go for it. But really, these larger programs like public service loan forgiveness um, and the waiver, but also this other initiative that's about to ramp up called the IDR account adjustment, that might be particularly useful for people who have been in repayment for a long time, because under that initiative. Borrowers who accumulate 20 to 25 years of qualifying time can get their loans forgiven under that program as well. And we're going to mm. see more on that probably in the coming months. Bottom line is for attorneys who have large balances, it's really important to understand you know, what you're eligible for and what plan is best for you. Um, should you be paying off your loans as aggressively as possible to cut down on future interest accrual? Or should you, you know, maximize the amount of loan forgiveness that you might ultimately be eligible for by just paying your minimums? And that really depends on the specific borrower circumstances. You know, it's funny, I was going to ask you uh, when you came on, like, you got this niche practice, student loans. Do you ever worry about, like, I don't know, Bernie Sanders getting elected and being like, fuck all these people. All the student loans are <laughs> forgiven, like right now. You but know, it sounds like the process is actually more complicated, which is good for you. But yeah, I, I think it, this is a, I think this is an issue that niche practitioners in general have. Like this is a first step down a pathway. Do you ever get concerned that like, uh oh, what if I can't do the student loan law stuff anymore? 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly occurred to me before. I'll, I'll tell you that when COVID hit and they implemented the student loan pause, uh, which paused payments for right. millions of borrowers, um, you know, I thought, well, that's it for my practice. You know, I'm I'm done for. You're like at least packing up. The, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I'll just go on a long vacation. Um, but you know. <laughs> I kept that there were still things going on, obviously, and I kept busy. And uh, the last year, honestly, I've been the busiest I've ever been. It's wild. Um, I'm turning people away. I don't. I don't have capacity to take every case that comes in uh, because I, it, there's just too many borrowers and only one of me. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> is it possible that you know uh, I may no longer? have work uh, in this niche. Yeah, that's that's possible, but it doesn't really keep me up at night anymore. Certainly not these days. Good for you, man. Um, <laughs> all right, I, have, I have one more question for you. Sure. Before we get into the next segment here. One of the things I've seen online and other places is there are some people who are in the category of getting their loans forgiven who are like, hell yes, forgive my loans. But then there are some other people, not everybody, who have already paid their student loans off or who are mm. close to paying their student loans off. And they're like, what the hell? What about my student loans? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you get comments like that? What do you say to people when that's their take? I do get comments like that. I think there are uh, a minority of people. Um, and you I know, think honestly, that's true. My, res- you know, my, my response is, you know, we don't not give people relief. We don't not help people because someone before that didn't get that help or relief. You know, we're not, Hmm. you know, choosing not to cure cancer or try to find a cure for cancer (laughs) because other people, you know, had cancer. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, when they created social security, you know, we didn't say, well, you know, other people, uh, you know, had to suffer through uh, poverty and retirement. uh, So we shouldn't create social security for people that are entering retirement. Now, you know, it's, you know, to me, um, you, you know, as a society, you try to improve and progress. um, And I, you know, I, I certainly get that there's some frustration from folks who have already paid off their loans and now can't get that forgiven because there's no balance. But I don't think that means that we shouldn't be providing relief to people. Moving forward, I like it. Otherwise, we'd still be using stone tools, probably. Exactly. Adam, can you stick around for one more segment? I can. Excellent. Thanks for all the student loan information and tips. We'll take one final sponsor break here so you can find out more about our sponsors and what they can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. That's right. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash 
contracts to set up a call with a real live person, DocuBee will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Welcome back, everybody. That's right. We're at the rear end of the Legal Toolkit. It's the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Today, we're going to play a game called Forgive Me, because we're talking about student loan forgiveness. But Adam, what if I gave you the power to also forgive some massive historical blunders? How'd you feel Mm. about that? It's a lot of power, but I'm open to it. Well, yeah, you should take the power if offered. (laughs) So here's how we're going to play. I'm going to give you a choice between three famous mistakes in specific categories, and you can wipe one out. And I'm looking for your reasoning behind each choice. So I'll get that into it. We'll discuss. You ready to get weird? Let's do it. All right. Here's question one. You're Russia, and you just sold Alaska to the United States for $7.2 million. You're France, and you just sold the territory of Louisiana to the United States for $3 million. You're Spain, and you just ceded Florida to the United States. Now, I know we're both residents of the United States, and all of this inures to our benefit, but placing yourself in the shoes of those countries— which boneheaded mistake would you want to erase most? Oh, definitely Spain. Spain should have kept Florida. I mean, I'm from Florida. You are. You know, well, you're, I grew you're up a Florida there. man. I, would you say that? I mean, I would not say that. In fact, I try hard <laughs> not not to say that. I, I was born in New York, and I grew up in Florida, and I've been. I uh, was in Massachusetts for a long time after that, but you know. I feel like maybe Spain, if they had kept Florida, could have turned out to be a little bit of a better state, maybe. So, yeah, I think that's the one that, uh, that I'd go with. You might have been a Spanish citizen. That's really interesting. And then would, <laughs> would loans have been forgiven? Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Spain's a good choice. I think if pressed, I would have to go with Russia here. 7.2 million choice. for Alaska, man. Like, that's got to be like billions and hundreds of billions of dollars lost with all the national resources. But all that oil, yeah. All the oil. Yeah, I don't feel bad for Russia, though. All right. <laughs> Let's do another mulligan. This time we're going to do a sports-related mulligan. Your practice Uh-oh. is in Boston, right? If I remember correctly. Practice I is in from... Boston, although I, uh, I live in Vermont now, so not, not too many sports oh. up here. <laughs> well, that's all right. Lots of plaid, though. Lots of plaid. That's true. That is true. Subarus. I know the Vermont lifestyle. All right. You know it, yeah. I'm going to give you three sports mulligans, Boston-based. Pick your choice. And you may not be a Boston sports fan, so you may just want to keep all of these. So, (laughs) first, you're Larry Bird, and you're able to sink the game-winning shot in Game 4 of the 1987 NBA Finals, tying the series at two games apiece. Or, you're Bill Buckner, and you bend down just an inch further 
to stop that Mookie Wilson grounder in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series, or you're Asante Samuel and you make the interception of Eli Manning in Super Bowl 42 against the Giants to potentially preserve <laughs> the Patriots' perfect season. And I don't care that much about the Bruins, so we're going to stop here. What do you think? Which mulligan would you want to take? <laughs> to be perfectly honest... I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm not much of a sports person, and I don't even know most of what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, let me take this one. Let me take this one. <laughs> Celtics are my favorite team. I'm okay. Larry Bird. I sink the shot in the 87 NBA Finals. We're two championships ahead of the Lakers at that juncture, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. Now, you said you're not a sports fan. Did you play sports at all ever? Or? Uh, I ran track and did little league uh, when I was that counts. Um, that counts. So you know, I did I did some sports. Yeah. What do you guys do for sports up in Vermont these days? You riding moose or something like that? <laughs> riding moose. Do a lot of hiking. Uh, and yes. as winter is approaching, I am uh, getting excited about some uh, winter activities. Skiing uh, and uh, snowshoeing are on my list. So we'll see. Snowshoeing. It'll be my first winter up here. So snowshoeing, hard work, and extremely underrated. I think. Uh, I people people don't it. understand how. Have you have you not tried it before? Snowshoeing I've never is hardcore. Before. It's I, a workout, I, man. You got to pump those <laughs> knees. Cannot wait. I've snowshoed and sweated about a liter. All right, <laughs> here's another one for you. We're going to do the show business, Mulligan. You're Kevin Costner, and instead of making Waterworld, you take the role of Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> or you're Will Smith, and you take the role of Neo in The Matrix rather than making Wild Wild West. <laughs> Lastly, you're Burt Reynolds, and you decide that an American can play James Bond rather than ceding the role to George Lazenby. Which would you redress? I think I'd have to go with Will Smith. I mean, we all know Wild Wild West was, you know, one of the worst movies ever made, and... Um, <laughs> You know, he can't really beat the star power of the Matrix. So I think I think it has to be that one. That's a good. That's a that's a tough choice. Waterworld <laughs> was also a really yeah, terrible bomb I, as well. As soon as you said that one, I was like, well, clearly it's going to be Waterworld. But then you said Wild <laughs> Wild West. So. <laughs> that is that is an abjectly horrible movie. I don't know yeah. how I feel about an American. Ja so Burt Reynolds actually turned down the role of James Bond because he didn't think an American could play it, which I actually think is an astute move. It might not have turned yeah. out very well. I would have watched it. <laughs> oh, I would have too. All right. I got one more for you. We're moving sure. on to the world of publishing. You're okay. one of the 12 publishers who rejected the Harry Potter series. Oh, man. Or you're one of the 144 publishers who rejected the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Mm. Or lastly, you're one of the 30 publishers who rejected Stephen King's Carrie. Now, this may have more to do with your choice of literature than anything else, but which mulligan would you erase from history? Honestly, I think the Stephen King one. I mean, just the 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 sheer volume of uh, works that he's created. I mean, you know, he just came out with another book recently. I haven't read it, yeah. but uh, a couple of my friends have, and they said, you know, it's really amazing that he just continues to pump out these books that are just completely uh, engrossing. Um, you know, I, you you really just can't beat Stephen King. I think I'd have to go with that. You're going with lifetime value. That's, exactly. that's solid. Exactly. That's solid. Exactly. Yeah. And then, like, I feel like every Stephen King novel has also been remade into a movie or a Netflix series. So you're getting yep. some of that back end as well. 
100%. Royalties, royalties, royalties. You were an astute business manager, my friend. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for subjecting yourself to the rump roast. (laughs) I had a lot of fun. Me too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Adam. We'll talk soon. Take it easy. Sounds good. All right, you too. If you want to find out more about Anna Minsky, student loan lawyer, visit MinskyLaw.com. That's M-I-N-S-K-Y dash law, L-A-W dot com. Minsky dash law dot com. Now, for those of you listening in the X, Massachusetts, yes, that's a real place. We've got a great Spotify playlist for you this week. We've got Coldplay's greatest hits, Jared's version. I've run out of time, though, and I won't be able to talk about peak foliage in New England until next fall. Alas. This is Jared Career reminding you that my college roommate didn't think baby pigeons were real because he had never seen one. Neither have I, honestly, but I'm sure they exist. Right? Right? The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.